God. It's an interesting time to live in Alberta and Canada. We are uh, people who used to be abundantly blessed, and many of us are struggling, as we've just heard. But Lord, our needs, when it compares to the rest of the world, are nothing. You look at the world, you've got the whole world in your hands, as the song says, and you look at it completely differently than we do. And where we see suffering, Lord, you see hope because you know how powerful and how potent your church is when it's engaged. So, Father, engage our hearts and our minds this morning. Open our ears, open our minds and our hearts, and we ask that you speak to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, I was uh, taking some university courses out on Vancouver Island. I was in a master's level leadership um, course with mid-career professionals who were retuning and retooling their leadership skill set. There were political leaders, military leaders, people from business and banking. There were uh, chiefs of native bands. There were uh, teachers, medical professionals, and one solitary pastor. Or as a friend of mine who was with the uh, New Westminster Police Service liked to call me because he was from Britain, he used to call me the vicar. And the university had a unique approach because they had mid-career professionals who had a rich background of experience to draw from before they even entered the program. They would contract with businesses and organizations all across the country and use us as a think tank. They would literally hire our, court, our classroom, our, our cohort, as a consulting team, and they paid money to get some of their problems looked at from our perspective. It was a fascinating experience. Uh, Mountain Equipment Co-op and Air Canada were on the list of organizations that had already used this uh, unique tool by the time I got there. And I remember about week one or two into the program, I was having coffee with some, some members of my learning team, and somebody said, oh, Conrad was on my team today, and somebody else went, oh, what now? Oh, he went off on one of his tirades again, just ranting and raving, and we couldn't calm him down, and it totally disrupted our day. I thought, well, that was interesting, so I asked a few questions, and then a week or so later, I found myself on a team with this gentleman named Conrad. Now, we had been hired or consulted, we were a consulting team for a not-for-profit domestic abuse organization, a little mom-and-pop not-for-profit out of Nanaimo, British Columbia. And they were, had some significant financial problems, and they had hired us to help them. And I remember our first meeting as a team, Conrad gets wound up, and all of a sudden he's going, the world is falling apart. There are poor children out there, there are wars, there's disease, there's AIDS, there's famine. This is important, but it's not nearly as important as that. We've got to get onto that. We've got to fix the big problem before we can even worry about the little problems. And I thought that was interesting. I asked him a few questions, and then I believe somehow I ended up with the job of corralling him, but we managed to get the rest of the job done. The next day, I took him out for a coffee, and I said, tell me a little bit about what your background is and why you're so passionate about what you were talking about. And Conrad said, he said, well, he said, listen, I, I was a potato farmer in New Brunswick for my entire life. And I eventually sold the family farm, and I decided to take a little bit of the money and see the world. 
and I saw the world, but it wasn't the, the tourism world that all the books and the brochures told me about. I fell into places where no person should go. I saw starving children. I saw famine. I saw war. And, 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 I, and I came here to hoping that this degree could give me tools to figure out what to do with it. And I said, well, Conrad, you know what I do for a living, right? I'm a pastor in church. Uh-huh. I said, were you aware that just last year in America, almost a half a trillion dollars were given to alleviate poverty and suffering and donated? He said, I I didn't know that. I said, and the largest giving blocks were Christians in the United States of America. He said, really? I said, yeah. And then he looked at me as if I were crazy. And he went back into his rant. And then he said something in passing as I tried to argue with him or at least give him some clarity. He said, religion is never going to solve the problems of the world. A year later, I went back for the second year of residency and Conrad had dropped out of the program. We never did hear what happened to him. But my friends, what I told him that day and what has remained true for 2,000 years is the Christian faith has always been fueled by compassion and charity. In fact, historians are pretty much clear and in pretty much in agreement that Jesus himself invented the concept of charity. Here's a quote for you. From the wellsprings of Christian compassion, our Western civilization has drawn its inspiration and its sense of duty for feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, looking after the homeless, clothing the naked, and tending to the sick, and visiting the prisoner. Here's another one. As missionaries circled the globe, They established hospitals. They founded orphanages. They started rescue missions. They built almshouses, opened up soup kitchens, incorporated charitable societies, changed laws, demonstrated love. They lived as if people mattered. Friends, if anything, we have a historical reputation as being the ones who stand up for people in need. And in short, every time, charity and compassion are seen in operation, no matter the source, the credit goes to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus fills empty stomachs and empty hearts. And obedience to Christ's example is the single most effective way to alleviate poverty, period. Jesus demonstrated and invented charity as a way of life. There's no evidence of any large-scale compassionate movement before he came onto the scene. Any cultural sense of duty and compassion has its roots directly through Christ. And he was simply being obedient to the Bible. The Bible has over a hundred promises and commandments that compel us to to care for the poor and needy. A lot of them come from the Old Testament. Most of them were being ignored. Jesus was the first person to fully live this out, and he inspired millions. From William, William and Catherine Booth with the Salvation Army, to Franklin Graham with Samaritan's Purse, Bob S. and Bill W., the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, and Mother Teresa, History is littered with the names of people who found meaning and found purpose in living with compassion. But it started with Jesus. And when Jesus launched his ministry, when he got going, he was invited into a synagogue and he was given the opportunity to read from the scrolls and he unrolled a specific scroll and this is what he read. He read his mission statement. He said in Luke 4 verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners or the oppressed and give recovery of sight for the blind, to set those who are oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Christ's very own words, his inaugural statement as he came onto the scene included the poor and Christian living also includes the poor. You see, Jesus promised good news to the poor. And good news is not salvation and an empty stomach. Good news is salvation on a full stomach. Because as we see through his example, Christ addressed the physical needs and the spiritual needs. It was his way. Heal the body, heal the heart, heal the soul. Jesus fills empty stomachs and empty hearts. So what does this mean to you and I? Because he leaves us with a challenging example and a compelling commandment. He said that loving God means that we love our neighbor. And then, I love this part, somebody had the audacity to ask him, well then, who is my neighbor? And the answer changed everything. Jesus told a story and turned a total outcast, a Samaritan, into the hero who went out of his way to care for somebody on the opposite side of the racist spectrum, on the opposite side of bigotry, and on the bottom side of a caste system. The Samaritan became the hero. He took two people, Jesus did, who socially had no right to be together and turned them into friends who supported and cared for one another, forever imprinting on his followers that in God's kingdom... No one is forgotten. No one goes without. No one goes hungry or needy. Our treatment of the outcast, he said, is our demonstration of our love for God. And it's through that lens that we interpret all the rest of his actions and his teaching. God's plan for releasing people from poverty is simple. It's found in a famous promise that Jesus made. And Jesus made a promise. He has invited us to help him keep it. That's the exciting part. God has made an incredible promise to humanity, but he needs us to help. Take a look at this. We're just going to read the bold because there's a lot of words here. He said, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Verse 27, Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Next one. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. He promises provision for those who put his kingdom first. So then you have to ask yourself, well, who makes up his kingdom? And there's an interesting verse from Luke chapter 6 in the Beatitudes where Jesus says, or Luke writes this, looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The poor have always had a portion of God's kingdom. And they've always had an easier time following Christ because they're not weighed down by the entrapments of materialistic society. And we've said it before many times in our church that context is everything. And when you look at the context of this passage, you see it's a specific promise to those who are serving God. 
God, Jesus is saying, if you serve me, I'll look after your food, I'll look after your clothing. And yet this passage, and one other we're going to look at in a minute, are almost exclusively tied to charitable work. So how did that happen? How did it move from being about God's kingdom and God's kingdom workers to being about everybody? And the answer I've already given you. Because somebody had the audacity to ask him, okay then, who is my neighbor? And Christ's answer changed everything. Jesus' words taught humanity. They taught us how to be charitable. And history is littered with people who've dedicated their lives to that. Anyone in need is my neighbor. And I cannot love God without loving them. The fulfillment of his promise is not easily done. And Jesus did say to us that the poor will be with you always. And in fact, they are. A recent survey says that 74% of the world's population live in a form of poverty. 74%. Now, poverty is defined by a number of factors. It includes a lack of food, a lack of income, a lack of electricity or sanitation, drinking water or education. 74% of the world is lacking in one or more of those areas. And Jesus' mission was to bring good news to those people. He promised them an answer. And Jesus made a promise, but he's invited us to help him keep it. We are the solution to his promise. So here's the solution found in another portion of the scriptures, Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, uh, that would be me, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger, and invite you in, or need clothes, and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the, the king replied, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus made a promise. He said, The hungry mouths will be fed, the naked bodies will be clothed, the sick are going to be looked after, the lonely will be comforted, and those who sincerely love him are the ones who provide that service. I count myself among those blessed by the Father, my heart then has to be responsive to this passage. I have to do something with what I've been given. Jesus made a promise. He expects us to help him keep because Jesus said if we love God, we love in those in need. Now, here's the wonderful thing about God's word, friends. The Bible isn't just about do, 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 do. There is an incredible promise and a reward promised in the Bible for those of us who serve him. Proverbs 19, verse 17 says, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. There is a reward, friends, but it might not be what you expect. You see, we often read this, and sometimes people teach specifically that if you give money to God's kingdom, you'll get money in return. Uh, actually, if we look closer, we find that if you give money to God's kingdom, he promises to give money to your return so that you can give even more. That's the only time he promises cash for cash. But there is a concept of reward that is beyond a cash reward. The word is misthos, and it means wages are higher. The reward is a wage. You give something, you get something in term. But theologians have defined it as a, what they call a divine recompense, 
a divine repayment. That's what the word reward means. It appears 29 times in the New Testament, seven times in the Sermon on the Mount. However, the context of its use changes. It doesn't mean that we directly get paid in cash. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, There is a reward for humble giving. He said there is a reward for humble fasting. And there is a reward for humble prayer. God will listen to you. God will hear you when you pray if you do it in humility. He also promises us that there is a great reward in heaven for our generosity. And he does also say that there is a simple reward of joy. Joy. Do you have enough joy in your life, friends? When we're generous, it changes our perspective. We bless others and we are blessed in return. And we will be rewarded for it. And we will be able to continue to con- our generosity. That's what God says. Because giving is in God's heart. And we are made in that image. So we should find joy in giving as well. He is the greatest giver of all, after all. What did he give for us? His one and only son. Therefore, when we give to those in need, we in turn experience a bit of God in our life. When we give to those in need, we experience God. No wonder the writer of Hebrews said that, when, that Jesus looked at the cross and considered it pure joy to endure the suffering that was set before him. Jesus saw that if he gave everything to God, he would have the joy of eternal life with us, and it gave him the inspiration to sacrifice everything. Joy is a promised outcome of our giving, and with it comes the fruit of peace and love and goodness. And from a heart of joy and peace and love and goodness, we have a wellspring from which worship, authentic worship, can flow. That is the reward you might not have expected. Giving leads to worship. Giving leads to joy. But where does joy come from? It's an emotion, isn't it? And where do our emotions come from? Well, from our heart. And Jesus addresses that too. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. You see, friends, the common theme in all of the word, the, the, the uses of the word reward is that God promised us to amend or repay us for our sacrifices. And where you give your time and your talent and your treasure, it creates a vacuum in your bank account, in your schedule, in your heart, in your skill set. We draw out of that and God promises to fill it with something differently, something else. But a reward is guaranteed for our sacrifice. And sometimes it's a surprise of joy. 20 years ago, Raina and I bought a house for somebody in the third world. We had an opportunity to build a house in a warmer climate with uh, a much different cost of living. So the, ex- the expenses for the house were a whopping total of $400. $400 Canadian. I opened that envelope and I read that and I, I've never written a check so fast in my life. Do you know what the reward is? 20 years later, I can stand on a stage and go, I built a house for $400. Like it just still feels fantastic. It's like living a dream. I gave a family a house for less money than I spend at Costco. 
Like, how awesome is that? And Isaiah 58 promises us joy. He says in verse 9, If you do away with the yoke of oppression, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. Your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. And in verse 14, he promises this, Then you will find your joy in the Lord. And yet for many of us, we experience a lack of joy. Our Christian faith, it doesn't have tangibles. It doesn't have application. We read books or we have discussions. We go to church. We learn all about Jesus. But we stumble when it comes to living like him. Without application. Without digging in. Rolling up our sleeves. Getting our hands dirty. And our faith becomes intellectual and cerebral. And without emotion. So friends, if you want to feel something, you got to do something. Back to what I, the verse we just read. Where your treasure is, your heart will also be. Where you put your money, your heart will follow. Where your treasure goes, your heart goes. And that's why the result is joy. Where we invest in, our attention goes as well. We love what we give to. Do you love God's kingdom? Give to God's kingdom. Do you love his church? Give to his church. For me and my house, friends. We fall in love with three kids living in poverty in Peru. We give out of compassion for them. Our heart goes, our money goes somewhere, and our hearts follow. My reward, I give and I get in return a love that defines my imagination. But you got to know something, church. I didn't start out this way. I wasn't naturally a giver. I married a giver. <laughs> My wife, whenever she talks about getting more money, she just thinks, how can I give more of it away? When Rain and I were dating, I remember going to the mailbox and she pulled some mail out of her mail slot and she looks at one and goes, oh, a letter from my compassion kid. And I said, you're what? And she goes, oh, I have a kid. I had no idea what this was, so it took me a while to get my head around what she was talking about. And then when we got serious about our relationship and started talking about the big M word, she said, by the way, the kid comes with me. Your money is going to pay for this kid. And I just went, okay, whatever it takes. (laughs) I love you. I love this kid. But I finally figured out over the years that my heart is the biggest problem. My heart is the piece that gets in the way between truly giving If I want to love God, I have to love my neighbor. But then who is my neighbor? I recently read uh, that Christian publishers will not publish books on giving to the poor or clothing the naked. They won't do it because they don't sell, even in churches, which is shocking, because it's a hard issue, friends. We naturally don't gravitate towards that. Who really does like sacrifice? We don't, unless there's an end goal, unless there's a what's in it for me that's answered. We tend to avoid it. So in my life, I had to start asking myself questions like, would I be willing to give up Netflix and a couple of lattes a month for my own children? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Then I start thinking about my neighbor, a single dad who lives in the house next to me with a beautiful young daughter my own children's age, and I have to ask myself, would I be able to give up Netflix and a couple of lattes a month for him and her? Absolutely. That's my neighbor. I love my neighbor. But then Jesus says, question haunts me, but then who is my neighbor? 
And then I realize the entire world needs what I can give. And I have to be willing to sacrifice a little bit to get to reap the joy. Because my treasure goes where my heart goes, and my time goes, and my talent goes, and God will reward me for it. So if you want to feel something, friends, do something. Your faith was never meant to be about collecting information, but rather applying what you learn to live like Christ. It's the act of loving that compels our emotions and feeds our soul. And the Bible is very clear that when we serve people in need, it is proof of our love of God. See James 1.27, if you don't believe me, where James says, if you have compassion for the orphans and the widow, those who are oppressed, God deems that valid religious living. So if you're uncomfortable with the status of your faith or the condition of your soul, or wondering why you even bother coming at all and doing all this Christian stuff, let me ask you a question. Have you allowed God to have your heart and work in your heart in such a way that you get to fill a stomach and in turn fill your heart with love, purpose, and meaning? Because Jesus fills their empty stomachs, but he fills our empty hearts. And that's what I've learned this year more than any other. The reward we get by serving the poor is immeasurable. It fuels our faith. It gives context to our beliefs. It warms our heart. It challenges our journey. And it gives purpose and meaning. The poor are a vital part of our pursuit of Christ. Now, I am very pleased to be in a church like this because there are a number of ways we work with impoverished people around the world where we roll up our sleeves and we get our hands dirty. The Okotoks Food Bank is literally an arm stretch away. We can touch it. It's tangible. There are neighbors. Operation Christmas Child, every year you come and you see us stack up to the, to the bottom of the, the screens, shoeboxes, and we know that it's far more than a shoebox. Mennonite Disaster Service. We have men and women now traveling the continent, serving those who have lost their houses, lost their livelihoods, lost their minds due to things beyond their control. But I'd like to introduce you to Compassion Canada. As one of the world's leading child development organizations, Compassion partners with the local church in 25 countries to end poverty in the lives of children and their families. Canadians alone sponsor about 108, 110,000 kids. They work with 19,000 mothers and newborns, teaching them basic life skills. And approximately 200,000 letters per year are written by Canadians to their kids overseas. And let me tell you something. There is nothing more powerful than a letter to a child who has a hard time believing that people even care. Where your money goes, your attention goes. And when your heart's engaged, friends, sitting down and writing a letter is the highlight of your week. Trust me, I've written a few in the last few months. Where your attention goes, your heart follows. And where your heart resides, your focus rests. And a simple letter can change a child's life. With compassion, there is no separation between Jesus and children and poverty. They're one of the few organizations left who refuse to separate their work from the work of the church, and they are not willing to compromise on the gospel. Today, globally, two million kids, two million children are discovering lives full of promise and purpose as they develop in all the different aspects of their lives, their minds, their bodies, their relationships, 
And they have an opportunity on a regular basis to encounter God's life-changing message of hope that we call the gospel. Compassion is dedicated wholeheartedly to releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. There are 15 countries around the world, including Canada, that offer this financial support, prayer, and letters to the children they serve. And with compassion, you get the satisfaction of knowing that as much of your contribution as possible gets where it needs to go. With compassion, you get the guarantee of making a difference, and you discover the potent power of relationship. How do I know this? Because in November, my wife Raina and I joined them for five days in Peru. Compassion exposed us to as much as we could possibly handle. Kids, all the kids, feeding programs, education programs, meeting with nurses who take care of the physical uh, and medical needs, water reclamation projects, work they do with pregnant new moms, work they do directly through the church. Speaking of churches, Compassion is on its way to becoming the largest church planting organization on planet Earth. Since 2011, that's nine years ago, they've planted 300 churches, all based around one of their children's feeding centers. All of these plants have been in Central or South America. An average feeding center has approximately 200 kids. By design, 80% or 160 of those 200 kids are from non-Christian homes. So when you take a look at just the amount of churches that they've planted, that's about 60,000 kids and families involved in new church plants in the last nine years. 48,000 of those children were from non-Christian homes. Think about that. 48,000 kids encountering the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Wow. And each of those mother churches trends towards planting one or two other churches as a result. And currently, Compassion budgets for approximately 50 to 55 church plants a year. That's 100,000 people, 80,000 lost souls that will likely find Christ. Finances are their only limitation. Now, I just threw a bunch of numbers at you. That's not a nice thing to do on a Sunday morning, so I apologize. So I'm going to give you one soundbite that you will remember. Every four minutes, somewhere on the planet, a child of the Compassion Program receives Jesus Christ. One in four minutes. 300 churches in the last nine years. 28 of them were in Peru. We saw five. Our lives are changed. We met graduates of the program, young adults, who are now telling us where they're going to school their career plans, the hope that they have, and by the way, the important power of a letter. We asked them, what was the number one thing from your entire experience? Do you know what they said? They said letters. Blew our minds. We met a man who was enrolled in the program 30 years ago, and now he volunteers his time back as an adult to teach young men, young boys, life skill and job skill training, how to silkscreen shirts and banners and signs that they can sell at the market so they have a business. We visited houses. We looked at the files of the children because Compassion wanted us to know that they care about every detail. The attention to detail doesn't just stop in Canada and end when it goes to the third world. It exists at a local church level there. And we met with pastors who now have a powerful voice back into their community because of the work they do. 
Friends, our hearts exploded. We realized that if we want to feel something with our faith, we have to do something with our faith. Now, here's the ironic thing. We've kept a lot of these stories to ourselves. This is the first time I'm standing here sharing with you at this level. Not a single one of you, though, over the last three months has asked me for a sermon about my trip to Peru. So I'm going to put the sermon away. And I'm going to give you what you came for. You want to hear some stories. I know you do. And I'm going to ask for a couple of minutes of your time because I want to share with you a story about how my life was turned upside down. We flew into Lima. We got there about 2 in the morning. Uh, Crossed the street from the hotel. Checked into, or crossed the street from the airport. Checked into a hotel. The next morning we got up, had breakfast, hopped on another flight and flew all the way north, almost into Ecuador. We're descending into the airport and one of the compassion reps comes by and grabs Reina and says, oh, by the way, we just found this out, but you're going to meet all three of your sponsored children within the first hour. (laughs) If you know my wife, she just about lost her mind. Michael, we're going to meet all three kids. What do I do? I have gifts. I haven't organized myself. I don't even know where my toothbrush is. What do I do? So we land. We get out. We find the gift bag. And we're sitting at the front of the bus, furiously packing backpacks. And we were told at first, it's okay. You got about 40 minutes. I mean, 10. I mean, five. Oh, we're here. (laughs) We barely got our stuff together. Turns out we were literally only a few blocks away from the airport. But we didn't know that when we got there. We walk into this church. The kids are all singing and dancing. and They're, they're, they're all greeting us in the streets. They've got Canadian flags. The Canadian flag and the Peru flag are almost identical with the exception that we have the maple leaf. Other than that, it's the same flag. Some kids in one of the centers we dropped into, they cut out a, the best they could a, um, a maple leaf and they'd sewn it on their own flag to make a Canadian flag. One of the compassion reps says, he says, that's good. I was at a church one time and I think they had the marijuana leaf. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to judge. We, we walk in and we're assigned translators. And we realized as we walked in, like we took precedence over everybody else just because we had not just one kid, but we had three kids. So we were given a couple of trans, translators. And then we sat down and we met Nomi. Nomi. She's four. Her family lived uh, just south of where we were. It took them about an hour and a half to get there. And both parents came. And as I flew in, I said to one of the compassion uh, workers, I said, um, you mean I'm going to be meeting a dad? He said, yeah. I said, I'm a dad. I would feel humiliated to meet somebody who gave their money so I could feed my kids. How does this work? He said, that's your North American worldview getting in the way. When you meet these people, they are so grateful for the contribution. You are giving them hope. You're giving them a future. You're giving their children. You love their children. They love you. They will come an hour and a half just to meet you. Then we met David. David is five. That little kid had more energy than our entire Sunday school program. (laughs) His mom came with him also about an hour and a half to the church just to meet us. Now remember I told you the power of a reward, that God will always reward you. Turn to the next slide. This was the reward I got. That kid, that kid is the world's greatest hugger. And he's hugging me. And other people hugged him and went, wow, that kid can hug. And because I am in a Spanish culture and I'm the male, I'm the patriarch, I became his focal attention. That day, there was nobody more important in the room than me. 
except for him. But I couldn't convince him of that. That little guy stole my heart and gave me the best thank you in the form of a hug I will ever get on this side of heaven. And then we met Rosa. Rosa's 13. She turned 13 this December, just a couple weeks after we were there. We sat there and we talked. It was chaos. There was noise everywhere, kids everywhere. We're working through translators, which just makes everything challenging. And I'm talking with David and his mom through my translator, and all of a sudden, Raina starts to elbow me in the ribs. She says, Michael, did you hear that? Did you hear that? I said, hear what? Rosa just told us that she's been in the program for nine years, and she's never had a sponsor. She told us this. Her mom told us this. The next day, I woke the translator up from a nap on the back of the bus, and he confirmed it. Nine years. Dads, do you remember what happened to you the day you met your firstborn? You're in, a, you're in that hospital room, and your wife is dying. She is in pain and agony, and men, we like to fix it, and we go, I can't fix this. I am useless. I'm a tool. And we pace the floor, and we try to help by giving ice chips and rubbing backs, but it just feels like we're in the way. And deep in the back of our minds, there's a little voice that says, yeah, buddy, this was your fault. (laughs) And then there's this moment of chaos, and we're suddenly holding our firstborn. And we look into those eyes, those sweet eyes, and in a microsecond, something happens. And we think to ourselves, child, two minutes ago, you were killing my wife. But right now, I would die for you in a heartbeat, without a second thought. That's the power of becoming a parent. And when I heard that story, when I heard that Rosa had been in the system and had been somehow ignored for nine years, I fell in love with her like a dad to his own daughter. I went from, isn't this a nice, ex- a nice experience, to fully invested in this child's life. She had mentioned that she wants to grow up and become a civil engineer. I immediately thought, well, I'll have three kids in university, but what's one more? We'll fly her to Canada. She can go to the University of Calgary. She can live in our basement. And then the devious part of my mind went, and I can teach her how to shovel snow. You see, I felt like she had been exploited, not physically or emotionally, but by a promise. And the promise goes like this. God loves you. God has a, wants a relationship with you. He's asked someone who also loves him to love you. They're going to make a commitment to make your life better. And this person will have a relationship with you, demonstrating how you can relate to God. The power of the word commitment in point number four makes all the difference in the world. And a piece of that promise went broken. And in that moment, she went from the sponsor kid to my kid. Last week, I read this quote by John Ortberg. He says, Seeing suffering does not move me to act if I think of a person as him or her. But when I think of the person as part of us, a part of me, then I am moved to bless Jesus may have been speaking quite literally when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, in those five promises, part one and two, that's the North American view of the gospel. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But to children in the third world, parts three, four, and five are vital to how they understand God. If somebody is willing 
who has no reason to even care, if they're willing to love me enough to give me some of their, their, their well-being and give me a little bit of attention, I must have value to God. And then the commitment to God that they're being asked to make, make makes sense. Because that commitment is demonstrated by my commitment to them. Now later on, when we got back to Canada, my wife sends off a hasty email to Compassion, and we found out she had actually been sponsored in, this, in the program. She just had never really interacted with the sponsor. There was hardly any record of letter writing. And she might not have even understood that she had somebody that cared about her. But it got lost in the translation. And God let us live for 10 days with this tension that this child had been neglected. And that miscommunication changed my life forever. Because God taught us how powerful the commitment can be, the sponsor relationship. And in, in, in it shapes everything. In fact, in Peru, they have a special term for sponsor. And Raina's going to come up after I'm done, and she's going to share what that means. Because they don't even have a word for sponsor, so they've invented one, and it is powerful. We learn the power of this commitment through four graduates and one man silk screening with a bunch of junior high boys in a basement. Graduates of the program who said, my life was changed because of a relationship. I found God because somebody cared about me. Letters matter to these kids. Money does not. Relationships make the system make sense. The commitment we make to them is how they commit to hope. Now, meeting a sponsor is a rarity, but it is the highlight of a lifetime. Rosa didn't sleep the entire night before she met us. Meeting a sponsor is rare. Having a sponsor in your home, it's almost unheard of. And 15 minutes after God allowed us to believe for 10 days that Rosa had never been sponsored, I found out that we were doing a home visit. Oh, I said, where are we going? We're going to Rosa's. We're going to her house? Yes. My Rosa? Yes. So we rode there in a three-wheel taxi, like a rickshaw. My arm around her, my arm around Raina. This little girl sat so still. She was so much at peace. We went to her house we met um, a compassion worker out front who was her Sunday school teacher, her discipler, and sort of the liaison between the church and the family. We brought them a gift. It's Peruvian culture. You bring a gift when you show up. We were ushered in. We were sat down. A plastic white lawn chair covered in dirt was shoved under me. And as my eyes adjusted to the gloom, I asked myself, where am I? I was in a room with brick walls and a tin roof. They didn't even meet. There were major gaps, two feet. A rough cement floor. Some of it had just been wet cement thrown down and leveled with a rake and then left to dry. Cat feces, two feet away. Five bags of cement sitting in the corner. A plywood counter near the back. And then I noted what may be a stove. And I looked over and I saw a little plywood room and I thought I saw the edge of a refrigerator peeking out. And that's when it dawned on me. I was sitting in their living room. I was sitting in their dining room. I was sitting in their kitchen. This was their home. There isn't a single piece of property in Canada that would use this as a carport or a shed. We would just bulldoze it and start over. And I promise you, friends, this was the nicest house we saw in our trip. We made small talk with their older sisters, both late teens, early 20s, both married, both with little kids, there were dogs and cats that wandered around freely. Our translator, for whatever reason that day, wore a shirt with a map of the world on it. So we could point to his pectoral, and we could say, Calgary, 
and his stomach, Peru. And they go, oh, Canada. And this happened everywhere we went. Canada. And the kids would go silent. And they'd talk amongst themselves. And they'd go, Blanco Oso? Blanco Oso? Which is Spanish for white bear. <laughs> yeah, we have polar bears here. <laughs> Mom eventually joined us. She informed us that indeed this was Rosa's first sponsorship. So something was not connecting. She told us that she grew up in the church. But she left the church when she got married. One of our last letters from Rosa, she said, please pray for my mom. She needs Jesus. Directly in my line of sight, I could see a door leading out to the back. I knew there must be more to this than this one-roomed house. I could see some plywood walls and what appeared to be dirt uh, doors. There was a lot of dirt and some daylight. Um, Occasionally, a naked two-year-old boy would wander out of a room and into another. I thought that was really strange. There were turkeys and cats and dogs, even chickens, strolling around through the narrow passageway through the hallway. And finally, I sheepishly asked if we could see the rest. I was embarrassed to ask this question, but I was really curious. I didn't realize that this was an honor. Canadians came. Wealthy Canadians came and visited that house. We were the talk of the town. But to me, it was humbling to ask to see more. But they were proud. So we went back outside. We toured the burning refuse pile where they burned their garbage, where the pigs and the turkeys were kept. Mom, with a smirk on her face, taps me on the shoulder and through the translator points at one of the turkeys and said, his name, Christmas dinner. <laughs> she also informed us that the bricks were new. A few years ago, the house was made out of mud and a flood came on and pretty much demolished the thing. And she was rebuilding with the little extra money she could scrounge up. Five bags of cement in the kitchen. My heart was broken. And then I saw Rosa's room. And that's where I lost my mind. Because her bed was held up with bricks and boards, two by fours nailed together. The floor sloped at a 45 degree angle. And it was just dirt. The ceiling didn't even meet the wall. And there was an old political banner nailed up there to keep the bats and the birds and the bugs out. I don't know what she does when it rains. And I looked at the floor, and the floor is what got me. No child of mine lives like this. If I had moved into my house in Okotoks and there was so much as a cigarette burn on the carpet in my daughter's room, I would have gutted it and replaced the carpet. The thought of me as a dad laying asleep at night while my children got out of bed and put their bare feet on just a wooden floor to go to the bathroom was, would be more than I could handle as a proud Canadian. And my little baby girl Rosa in Peru has dirt and mud and filth and never once in her life has she gone to bed with clean feet. My child does not live like this. Except she did. And she does to this very day. I was embarrassed. The shame of her poverty weighed on me. I wanted to protect. I wanted to provide. I wanted to tear down that house and build her a new one. I was fully invested and I was completely powerless. Except I wasn't. Because Jesus made a promise. And he's asking me to help him keep it. You see, when I met that little girl wearing one, the one nice dress she had in the church, she looked just like any kid from our church. Clean, happy, and it didn't connect. The reality of the situation didn't change until I saw what reality was like. 
And then the compassion of Christ forced me to grow because where my treasure goes, my heart follows. And if you want to feel something else, then do something. So I did something. We did something. And I felt the implications of it so deeply. I wept for days. Just the other day, I couldn't even look at a picture of that girl without tears streaming down my face. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and my pillow would be damp from the tears rolling down my cheeks. Jesus allowed me to fill an empty stomach and he rewarded me by filling my empty heart. He blesses all of us by allowing us to be the solution to the promise he gave to address poverty for Rosa, David, and Naomi and their families. And he's given us the gift of allowing our worship of him to have an emotional component. We did something and we feel something. We love these kids. We love their families. They're a part of our lives. And when I look at that kid, I see Jesus. Because Jesus promised me that what I do for the least of those, I do for him. And it's an honor and a blessing to help be the solution to that promise that he gives her. Because see, in the end, friends, it's not her who's blessed. It's us. There's a story. You've probably heard it. But it's appropriate for a moment like this. It involves a little boy who wakes up one morning and takes his dog for a walk and he goes down to the beach and the tide's gone out. And he looks out over the stinking, reeking mud flats and he sees hundreds and hundreds of starfish laying there. And he knows that it's going to be a hot day. And he's already sees the hundreds of seagulls starting to swarm and kill the starfish. And he grabs a couple and he puts them in his hand and he steps out to try to run to the edge of the, the beach to throw them in, but he gets up to his ankles in the mud and he realizes he's never going to make it. So he stands there and he starts picking them up. He starts flinging them like frisbees as far as he can, watching them sail over the mud. Some of them make it, some of them don't. And then a man comes down, an old man, he hobbles over and notices what the boy's doing and he comes up to him and he says, what are you thinking? You're never going to make it. This is a useless waste of your time. Look at the starfish. There's so many of them and only one of you. You're never going to make a difference. And the little boy looked at the man, blinked a few times and the man said, listen, I know what I'm talking about. I was a potato farmer in New Brunswick. I sold my farm and I traveled the world. I've seen poverty, I've seen despair, I've seen hunger, I've seen famine. You can't make a difference. You're never going to make a difference. And the little boy wiped a tear off his cheek and then looked at the starfish in his hand and looked at the man and looked out at the wide, reeking mud flat and the tide was still continuing to go out. He looked at the man again and he looked at the starfish in his hand and he says, yeah, well, I made a difference to that one. 